fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me for 100 episodes is the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Well, Dan, it is great to be here. I can't believe we're at number 100. You know, as a physicist, we probably hit number 100 about, you know, 30 episodes ago because we just round. Um, but it's exciting to be at the actual number 100. <laughs> Yeah, this is a big one. Uh, you've been next to me for the entire ride, and it has been one heck of a ride. I'm excited to get into this episode, which is going to be remain a surprise until after we talk to our co-pilot, our co-100th episode guy, uh, our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, how do you feel about reaching this gigantic milestone? Has it changed your life for the better or for the worse? Uh, it's definitely changed my life for the better, and I like uh, Denon's thing about uh, rounding, you know. Uh, you know, we're on, the, we're in a new order of magnitude and I always love when we, uh, when you go up an order of magnitude. So very <laughs> excited to be here in this new era. Well, I think the next order of magnitude is what? 900 and uh, 899 episodes or 900 episodes. So we'll, uh, got to get to a thousand, Dan, got to get to a thousand. It's going to be a little bit where we have to do 10 times as many or 501 with rounding. <laughs> right well we are going to try to make that milestone as well but until we do we're going to finish this episode let's not get ahead of ourselves guys the journey of a thousand episodes starts when you get to a hundred and that's where we are today so we're going to talk about what the future looks like from a technological standpoint on several different questions but let's start this one off guys with your general predictions for the future i'm very curious where you see the future going uh and what's a quick prediction that you think is going to happen in the next uh, 900 episodes? In the next 900 episodes? Well, I really am waiting for direct implants. They seem to be everywhere on the TV and the movies. Our cell phone is almost there, but not quite. You still carry it around in your hand. I don't know that I want one. But that's my prediction. <laughs> All right. That's fair. Um, and we can, you know, well, let's talk to a guy. You don't have to go this route, but we're going to have a perfect segue to a guy who works with stuff that uh, operates around your brain, I guess. Uh, and that's Ben Seepser. Ben, what do you see the future looking like? Uh, what is your big prediction for the next, you know, 50 years? Well, I liked Denon bringing up the, the, uh, these implants. I think we're going to learn a lot more about ourselves in the future. We're going to be able to understand how the brain works and you know, revolutionize things like medicine and uh, you know, neuro diseases and all these things that we still have a lot of trouble with. I think, I think those are things we'll be able to crack in the nearish future. And that's really exciting to me, uh, you know, making people's lives better and, and improving the mind. Dan, can I change my answer? Yeah, 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 sure. Can I, can I like, add a new thing here? Ben inspired me, as always. I, I realized, you know, Dan, given what Ben said, I'm adding to my answer because I realized what I really want, flashing back to an earlier episode, I want the Star Trek type tricorder medical bay where they can do surgery on me without cutting me. I, we could almost do it now by sticking in the little optical fibers, but I'm going for the full-on, you know, bones, when he complains, what brutal, you know, whatever we are, cutting into people, no more cutting. That's what I want, 50 years on the table. 
Well, I, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to leapfrog off of you after you leapfrogged off of Ben. Uh, I've got two answers. Uh, the first comes off you guys, and I cannot wait until we can do prostate exams that are not manually, and they're all digital. I think we're getting close to that. We have mentioned, we have mentioned that before, but I feel like this is barbaric. We're, we have the power. we got to figure this out. And the second part of that answer is I really think in the future, my, my short-term prediction here is going to be energy, an energy revolution. I think that one is going to happen soon because if it doesn't, we're in big trouble. And that is our first question that we're going to tackle today. And that is when will we have an energy revolution? And since I kind of cheated, I'm going to use it as my segue. I'm committing to a year here, guys. And that's 2033. I think we will have an energy revolution by that date, if for no other reason that we are coming to the precipice of humanity's extinction. And I think that will necessitate a gigantic leap forward in energy and the way we do energy. It has to change fundamentally, completely, and drastically as soon as possible. That's the year. Denon, what do you think? Well, Dan, I think you're really close. Um, in the spirit of being exact, I'm going to go with January 1st. You went with 2033, if I recall right. <laughs> I'm going with January 1st, 2032. Because, okay. you know, as we all know, you have to be closest without going over. Um, and somewhere, <laughs> yeah. bet- you know, somewhere between that and 33 is when it's going to happen. So, um, okay. but right. I'm with you. I mean, look, necessity is driving this. Um, as we've talked about a lot on this show, we have not had that energy revolution, the 60s and 50s science fiction really expected. But we are in a new era where there are many, many elements of science driving us towards that energy revolution. I think we can get into some of that, but I'd like to hear Ben's year before I give you more details of why we're getting there somewhere between January 1st, 2032 and 2033. Well, so if we're going by prices right rules, I'll go for uh, January 2nd, 2033. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think we're, I think we are close. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of really cool fusion and new nuclear research that's going on right now. I think 12 years may be a little optimistic. I would certainly hope it's that soon, but I'm thinking more 15 to 20 years. So maybe like 2035, 2036 is probably more realistic, maybe even 2040. Uh, I think that's kind of where uh, we're going to start. That stuff is not only going to be working, but it's also going to be financially viable. And it's when it's going to start kicking in over the rapidly uh, price increasing fossil fuel industry uh, as the fuels run out. You know, Ben, I like the fact that you mentioned nuclear fusion real briefly. Dan, I'd like to put in that I think it's an ever revolution that's going to occur on two scales, psychological and technological. On the psychological scale, I think the, the, the dangers of climate change are going to make us rethink our fear of nuclear. Right. The fear of nuclear is just really because of the nuclear bomb. Nuclear, even fission reactors, we can do them incredibly safely. Um, Their safety record really outstrips anything we've seen in the energy sector. And so that alone, just upgrading our nuclear fission would be a major large scale energy revolution. And I have to give a shout out to UCI um, spun off research in the fusion space. People are doing some very creative, radical things in fusion. Now, fusion is always exactly 10 years away from any moment you talk about. And it's been true for the last 50 years. So we're real close to fusion. And, you know, it's probably about 10 years away. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to go back to the price is right rule. I got to correct you really quickly, Denon, before we move on. Uh, if you take lower, you're going to win unless someone gets it right on the nose. And I think I've nailed it right on the nose with 2033. So I think I'm going to win that extra 500 bucks that sits in Bob Barker or Drew Carey's pocket. Um, but, you know, I like Fusion. And, and there's a couple of cool things here. I want to talk about Fusion really quickly because there's a couple of fun things. I'm going to put some articles up on the website because Fusion has made some big advancements recently. You know, China just got, um, you know, their a Fusion reactor to 120 million degrees Celsius for 101 seconds, which is actually an incredible accomplishment. Uh, you know, you kind of have to know where we were before, which I think is like 80 million degrees for 10 seconds or something. So that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, the UK just developed an incredible heat exhaust system for one of their fusion reactors and the u.s just created a gigantic the world's largest most powerful magnet called the central solenoid for the iter which is the international thermonuclear experimental reactor uh, and that magnet is not made by acme so don't worry about wiley coyote getting a hold of it but it does weigh 110 tons each in each of six sections so these are big advancements guys so there's obviously fusion is on the mind but i'm going to tease something here I don't think advancing nuclear fission is a revolution. I don't know that fusion is the answer as far as a revolution goes. So I'm looking for a little more out-of-the-box thinking. Denon, you're our physicist. There has to be untapped energetic potential, an untapped energetic potential somewhere else in the physical universe. What do you think it is? Well, I think really, um, as I said, it's two sides. I think the fission-fusion side is big-scale um, I think it's a little more revolution than you're giving credit, Dan, because I think it's a psychological revolution, the willingness to use that. Um, I, I understand, though, your, your, your hesitation there. I think, shockingly, what is going to happen is miniaturization and what we use energy for has allowed us to think very creatively and out of the box. And one thing we didn't really see a lot of improvement on for a long time was battery technology. We weren't really thinking about piezoelectric generation, chemical generation in creative ways. We've been able to build really fascinating nanoscale oscillators and other um, interesting material devices. I think the miniaturization of energy generation is, is really fascinating from that true revolutionary breakthrough because many of our demands now are battery driven. We want our laptops to last longer. We want our phones to last longer. And the economic drive to have a radically different battery technology coupled with battery technology for solar is just driving a lot of this. So, um, Ben, that's probably an engineering thing, but I think there is a fundamental physics focus that's driving some of this revolution. Yeah, absolutely. The the development, that actually would be probably one of the bigger revolutions as we talk about it, is a better battery, something better than uh, you know lithium and ions and basically wet sheets of metal that are held very closely to each other to uh, store a charge, which is how batteries work. You know, something better than that would be an amazing revolution. Now, you know, we can get kind of exotic and talk about, you know, storing energy in other quantum realms or other dimensions. You know, that would be a true revolution. I don't think we're, you know, tens of years away from anything like that. I'm, there's obviously some much bigger physics questions to answer in terms of, say, manipulating gravity to make a better battery. But, you know, I think it's certainly possible that we could find some better chemistry out there that would get us more uh, storage than what we have already. And 
hopefully even more so finding a way to do that with materials that aren't uh, rare and require such um, extensive mining operations as our current uh, rare rare earth batteries do. Um, you know, it takes a lot of effort and energy to get that lithium out of the ground. And I hope we can find something better that will, you know, allow us to have a much greener uh, rechargeable battery revolution as well. Well, no, I think that's the question. But, you know, you've mentioned on the show several times, Ben, and, and it's definitely something that I've noticed. But, you know, we are still using technology that essentially boils water and spins a turbine. If we're still using nuclear fission to do that, that's not a revolution to me. There's nothing cutting edge about that. I do like this battery improvement. Maybe our future energy isn't electrical. I don't know. Here are some bad pitches before we move on, because I got to know, you know, when I'm thinking revolutionary, I think to myself, maybe we will uncover cover the secrets of dark matter. We talked on our Love, Death, and Robots episode about how slime molds may have mapped out the dark matter map in the galaxy. Maybe we tap into dark matter. Maybe there's something going on there. Or maybe there's some way to leverage antimatter. I don't know much about antimatter, except that when it meets regular matter, it annihilates itself and turns into energy. I just love that idea, and I love the act, the, the, the name antimatter. So maybe that's what my attraction is to it, no pun intended. But I I'm wondering if there's some way that we can leverage something new, Denon. I'm going to go one time around to you guys. Is there anything new out there that does not include nuclear fission or batteries? Well, antimatter would be really cool. It takes a lot of energy to make right now on the Earth, and there is this real mystery as to why there's more matter, way more matter than antimatter, but it might suggest that there's pockets of the universe with antimatter. Now, it has an initial problem that we're going to get to those pockets of the universe, which we'll be talking about later, I suspect. Um, but, you know, you might find that as a potential source. I like where you're going there. I still think I'm going to go with a version. You may not find this radical enough, but I think it is sort of nanobot as energy generators. Um, it's a weird thing. It's still electrically based in a way, but I just sort of picture um, the ability to machine little tiny windmills as revolutionary, and it's the next step um, after the Ben Seepser rotating bow tie um, used to generate electricity, which we um, <laughs> talked about in, in an earlier episode. So I, I, I'm actually, I think windmills are more radical than you think, Dan, and I think a nano bow tie windmill generating electricity is, is something different. Okay, I'll give you that. I, that's revolutionary. I like that. I usually think of, you know, wind turbines and, so, you know, uh, solar cells and all that stuff as being kind of just getting very little bang for your buck, but I like what you did there. I'll count that. Ben, I'm giving you one last crack at this revolutionary stance. Yeah, so I, I like that you're, you know, talking about things that are more exotic. Uh, and something that, that kind of popped into my mind is neutrinos. Neutrinos are these particles that, right now come through the earth at incredibly high speeds, but they also don't interact. They usually don't interact with matter and thus they just kind of pass through harmlessly. Uh, you know, maybe there's a way to say capture some of those guys, you know, figure out a way to create a material that always interacts with neutrinos. And then we can, I mean, we'd probably end up just having them annihilate and creating heat, which then would you know, again, become a steam engine. But, you know, we would be tapping a new source of energy that uh, that would that is basically fully renewable because it's always just emitting at us from throughout the universe. And it's a very high energy thing that's kind of available everywhere all the time. 
I'll, I'll give you that. I, I'll give you that. But before you step in there, Dennett, I'm going to give Ben a five out of six out of ten. I'll give a six out of ten for that. Um, it's not quite wind turbine, uh, power, uh, bow ties, <laughs> miniaturized. Uh, what do you got there, Dennett, to finish this off? Well, I, I'm going to up Ben's, and together we're going to be an 11 out of 10 because you okay. take the neutrinos, you build my nano turbine out of the material Ben invents. In, 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 invents? Invents. Yeah. Ben invents, right? <laughs> it's, an, it's an invented event. It's an invented event. The neutrinos spin the nano bow tie. You need no heat. You need no steam. You get a direct neutrino to bow tie turbine. I love it. Are you, are you willing to go with that, Dan? I'll give you that in 11. That was a five. Uh, there's a seven for you, uh, uh, a six for Ben. I'm giving you a 13 out of 10 to add them together. Uh, but I like the, the nanobots because it leads us to our next question. And I know this one is always on your mind, Denon. And that is, when will robots increase our leisure time? And I think this is a fun one, one explored in science fiction pretty often. And I got to tell you, I've got an answer to this one as well. Again, right on the nose, Price is Right style. I'm going to nail this one. Ding, ding, ding is what you're going to hear when I say this. This has already happened in 2020. Uh, 2020 put a lot of people out of work and the, it increased the leisure time of a lot of people because there's this great Wall Street Journal article about how pizza robot delivery drivers are taking over. You got Flippy in the fast food uh, in White Castles, you know, putting uh, putting people out of work. You got automated warehouses by Amazon. You got driverless cars. Now, these are just some of the sectors. This isn't putting a lot of people out of work, but I feel like the more people that are put out of work by robots will then give them more leisure time. Now, is that the leisure time that they wanted? Uh, no, definitely not. But it does answer the question of when we will get more leisure time. I think we have it. Denon, what do you think? I, I think you're just a little early, Dan. Um, the exact date is going to be July 4th, 2026, um, if I've done my math right. Um, okay. Five, five right. years into the future, I think 2021 plus five years is 2026. Um, cause, and, and July 4th, because it's going to be the new Independence Day. I, I, I okay. want that beautiful <laughs> markdown. Um, but I, I think it's going to take about five years for us as humans to psychologically adjust to this as leisure time versus being out of work, right? But I think you're exactly right. It, it, companies are finding it very hard to rehire in some sectors. Um, it's a challenge. People are really looking at, okay, how do we finally take technology and allow myself um, to have you know more flexible work. What it's really going to take is the American culture in particular. I suspect there's places in Europe where it happened you know 30 years ago because as far as I can tell, France takes the month of August off. Um, and I don't know if that's <laughs> due to siestas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if that's due to yeah. robots or just culture. Um, yeah. But I think in America, for it to come to be, we have to actually reach a point where we psychologically accept leisure time. Um, you know, I don't know about you, Ben. I are you willing to now relax? Since Dan has said the robots have have have, have saved us all. <laughs> well, I like that you brought up this this uh, this cultural shift because I think a lot of this is a cultural issue and not necessarily a technological issue. We've obviously been able to uh, put robots into places where it used to be lots and lots of people having to work. Uh, you know, if we if we think back to the agricultural revolution that has gone on in the past uh, century. You know, we, we've gone from a world where basically everybody in the world was a farmer, except for a couple people who lived in the city and like traded the, the products of the farmers uh, around to now we live in a world where almost nobody farms by percentage of people because we have combines that can do the work of hundreds of people in seconds. 
And so we already have this. We already have all sorts of these things. Um, but the reality is all it's done so far is push people to move to do other things, to do other work things, because we still have this uh, society of competition where we have to do something because we have to make money because that's the only way to get stuff. And until we can move into that Star Trek post-scarcity, everybody gets stuff, uh, we're not going to have this uh, situation where we have that leisure time. No, I think you guys are exactly right. This is a psychological issue, but I think, you know, part of it does come down to, uh, you know, everybody needs money. If people are out of work, they have more leisure time. The only way you can really enjoy leisure time is by having enough resources to not be, you know, to be able to feed yourself, to be able to close your to clothe yourself, to be able to be in, in a home. And I think that we have to figure that part out. I think the leisure time is already here. Um, and that is, again, as you mentioned, Denon, with the American culture especially, because this is definitely not true in Europe they got thing, and in Canada to some respect. they got things figured out. But I think we have a hard time, Just some of us have a hard time just <laughs> sitting around. I know I do. So I don't even know what leisure is, Denon, I guess, is part of it. But I think this is fundamentally a psychological issue. I'm with you on that, Denon. You know, Dan, and it's, I think Ben point, well, you both actually pointed out the other side. We have to be willing to take leisure. But we also have to be willing in America to have what I call a relaxed capitalism instead of an intense capitalism. Like intense capitalism is you're only of worth if you're working 80 hours a week and you're killing yourself. Uh, relaxed capitalism is, yes, we want everybody to work and contribute. And we want some level of competitiveness because we've seen that pure socialism tends to fail um, as well. But we need to find that sweet spot where People are motivated to work in the right way, but don't feel the need to work, you know, that 60, 80 hour a work week so that you have the means to enjoy the leisure time the robots and technology are giving us. So I think you both kind of hit that kind of double challenge that we have from both sides. What I think with leisure time, you know, it's a good it's a good question because what do we do with our leisure time, right? And I think what may answer some of these questions, what we do with that leisure time, or as Ben said, what other industries pop up? What other frontiers can we conquer? And I think, you know, this this leads us to our next question, which is when will we live in space? Now, I'm defining this as the first human being who lives permanently in space. Uh, the next phase of that would be when the first human child is born completely in space and lives out their life in space. Now, I've got a number on this. I think this is kind of a progressive number, but I feel like for the first human being living permanently in space, I've got 2053. This is kind of a ways out there considering we landed on the moon in 1969. We're going to Mars. You know, we've got already have, you know, industrial, uh, I guess you'd call them robber barons. That's probably a little extreme with uh, Branson <laughs> and, and Bezos. But you've got these industrialists going into space, racing to get up there. But I think it's going to be a very big step for someone to actually go and live in space, not just visit there like a tourist. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to go to Ben first here as our as our rocket engineer. What do you think is going on here, Ben? Wh where were you with this? What's your number? What year are you thinking? Yeah, so I, I think I think you're about right. I'm thinking 40 years from now, which would be like 2061. There's a lot, and I, I'm defining this as like somebody living in like a space station, you know, 
there, there's a big question of like, when does somebody move to Mars is a different question than when does somebody move to a space station? And I think the space station thing is actually a lot harder. Um, and to make a permanent settlement in space is a lot trickier than say having people move to Mars. And I think, I think we'll get that before we get the living on a space station part. Uh, what do you think, Denon? Well, I, I think this is, again, a simple math problem. As the physicist in the room, um, I'm going to rely totally on math. We all know that I will be the first human being to live totally in space, uh, live out the rest of my life. And we know this will occur on my 100th birthday. So the math becomes easy. It's December 10th, 2066, um, at about 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Give or take a few hours, Dad. Um, I love that. You should get blasted off the set. I mean, I love that. The second you were born, I love it. Yep. That's, I'm with it's, you on that. It's the way it's going to go. I mean, my dream has been to to be a space explorer my entire life. Don't ask me why I became a physicist instead of an engineer. I really didn't quite understand what was going on or why I studied bubbles and foam for my whole life instead of actually, you know, um, new forms of propulsion or space safety. But it's been a dream of mine. And I think when you combine the advances in medicine that we discussed at the beginning of the episode, um, people will definitely be able to keep me alive till I'm 100. I'll be fit, ready to go, and I will be the first permanent settler in space because I desire it strongly. Because it's going to take humans willing to do it as well as the technology that can achieve it. So once again, I'm bringing in the psychological element, Dan. That's how I know how exactly this is. By the way, you were both very close. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate that. And I got to tell you something else. You know, obviously, I, I, you know, I don't mean to have... Uh, an anti-human bent on all of my answers here, but I do find human beings to be the ultimate invasive species. So as far as going and being able to live anywhere in the galaxy, I think we will find a way. I, I think that we will have people on the moon, in a space station, on Mars, and those are three extraordinarily different environments, all of which are not native to the to human biology. But I think we will find that. We're already doing experiments on the differences, the changes in biology, the human biology, when they spend lots of time in space. We're going to figure this out. And through technology, we're going to be able to live anywhere. And I think if we keep destroying this Earth, the people who have the resources are going to want to get the heck off this planet. And I think that when you have people with a lot of resources and a, and a and an incredible motivation, you're going to see people taking off on this planet really soon if we don't figure out that first question of energy. So I don't mean to come full circle here, but what do you think about that? What do you think about our ability to live anywhere, Denon? Do you think we'll be able to overcome that? Do you think I'm right on this? Oh, actually, I really think you are. You know, first of all, when you think about humanity over its history, we have actually, I mean, they're not super, super extreme, but there's been surprising extreme conditions we've been able to adapt to. Um, from, you know, just living at the edges of the Ice Age to living in deserts. Um, you know, my, my daughter mentioned that she's planning to go to Palm Springs to, to vacation and, and looked up the temperature and was shocked that at 8 o'clock at night it was still 102 degrees, right? You know, Holy cow. Right. Talk about mean, extremophile. And, and people <laughs> yeah. live there, right? Um, mm -hmm. Now, the vacuum of space is a bit more extreme than any of the conditions we've lived in before, but we're good at building things to shelter us. Um, and so I really think... We have that creativity. Um, ben, are, are you as optimistic as Dan and I are? Now, Dan came from a pessimistic point, let's be honest <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. But I put <laughs> right, that right. optimistic spin on it. I want to be clear. <laughs> That's true. I absolutely think humans 
we'll figure out a way to do this. But I think it, it kind of, I, I like that you tied it into the energy revolution part because I think that's a critical thing. Uh, for people to wholesale move to the stars or at least to the moon or Mars, uh, we're going to need to, we're going to need that energy revolution. We're going to need ways to figure out how to make renewable uh, rocket fuel because right now our rocket fuel is all is almost entirely uh, fossil fuel based and we're going to have to figure out ways to uh, you know maybe use captured methane rather than uh, methane from you know hundred million year old algae to power all these rockets to get people out there because otherwise uh, there we don't have the the fuel reserves to get a lot of people off this planet. Is that why we're bringing cows along, Ben, to capture the methane and to solve the methane problem you know, on the Earth? If you bring a cow with you, you do get some rocket fuel for free. Uh, I, I don't know how the <laughs> physics work on that uh, in terms of uh, mass in versus mass out and how much propulsion you get. But, uh, you know, may, that might be a calculation for you. <laughs> OK. And also, I think what I hear you telling me, Ben, is that my high school um, uh, interstellar travel um, spaceship designs based on lighting off small nuclear bombs against a concrete shield are probably not the way to go? You know, I, honestly, that actually might be a good way to go. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we don't have, we do have to worry about our uranium stockpiles too. So we might not want to, we might have to figure out a way to do it without uranium or maybe get the uranium from asteroids. Um, but, you know, with a thick enough radiation shield, that is a, probably a good way to get some propulsion going uh, out in space. Okay. High school me, go, one point. <laughs> you did it. You peaked in high school, Denon, and you've been staying at a plateau since. You've been killing it. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because yeah, I, I listened to that and I think to myself, well, you get more bang for your buck out in space, right? So if you're going to have, you know, something that's going to blast you off, that's the way to do it. And then I think to myself, if, you've, if you're stuck on a spaceship with a farting cow as your propulsion, you're going to want things to end very quickly. Uh, and that's going to be our next section here is how does everything end? Does it end, you know, suffocating through, um, you know, a bovine flatulence or is there some other way uh Denon, i know you looked at a lot of science fiction how do things typically end in science fiction you know it, it actually is kind of all over the place from you know the apocalypse um which totally wipes everything out from robots or viruses um to other things but you, you really got three kind of endings that you want to be thinking about um one i'll call the star trek utopia ben already re referred to this um the other is the, you know the total apocalypse that wipes everybody out but what i also like is the functional dystopia um the mm. option in the middle um where basically the very rich manage to make a paradise somewhere usually in a satellite floating over the earth um and the non Rich's life gets significantly worse than it is now, which is hard to imagine for because as bad as it is. Um, but that is what I call the functional dystopia, where you have these two things competing. So you kind of have these three paths that you end up in um, as the world falls apart. Well, I like the functional dystopia. First of all, that's a great phrase. I love that you've coined it. We're here on Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies. Put that, when that ends up in Webster Comes Calling, looking to put that in the dictionary, then I want your picture right next to it. Not because you are a functional dystopia, but because you <laughs> came up with the word. But also, it's kind of interesting because in some ways, it's like a dichotomy. It's like a utopia and a dystopia existing. There is no middle ground. It's like the greatest and the worst, um, which is kind of depressing. But let's look at that. Let's look. How do things end? Now, I've got a couple of things here. 
here. I'm going to ask you about them, and then you can tell me which one do you think is more, uh, more, uh, you know, possible, more probable, uh, the highest percentage. So the first one I have is the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Obviously, that's the first one. Uh, now I have to tell you, if this were a real thing, I don't believe that it is. But if it were, I think that's going to happen any day now. We've looked at famine, uh, we've looked at pestilence, war, and death have all happened in the past couple years on a mass scale. Uh, you know, that's where I look to hear, you know, Denon, I know with the four horsemen of the apocalypse are near and dear to your heart. What do you think about this? Well, you know, I think that the interesting about the four men of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is those are horrors that we've managed to survive over and over. And and I, I really don't want to minimize the horror of any of those four. But I think humans have shown extreme resilience to each of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So they're not really as scary anymore as I thought they were at one point. Um, I think if, if civilization is going to get wiped out, it, it's going to have to be another choice. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that just those in isolation are not enough. Uh, you know, we've obviously figured out lots of ways to bounce back. I, I think really the big concern I have is scarcity for our very integrated and modern society. That's that in my mind is the biggest problem is what happens when important things to our functioning, uh, society start to run out. Uh, you know, not everything is renewable right now. And if we stop getting new stuff, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, and we need to work that out very soon. <laughs> I think so. And I think, you know, when you're talking about renewable resources, you know, we can jump right to that. You know, obviously you're talking about climate change or natural catastrophe. I have that on here. You know, I think that this, you know, the climate change to me is an exponentially growing problem that is going to get out of hand much sooner than it predicted. Because as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I don't believe that humans really have a respect and an understanding for all of nature. And once you start adjusting the delicate balance that is our binomial, biome, I think you really are going to see big major problems that are not just flooding, that are not just bad air. It's going to be much worse. I've got a prediction of 2027 as as the as human race being being thrown out of whack by climate change or a catastrophe. This is probably a doomsday scenario, but this is what I think. Uh, Denon, where are you with this? Just to be clear, clear Dan, you went 2027, six years from now, so I should be really nervous. <laughs> I did at 2027. Okay. Okay. Good. I just want to make. I'm packing my boat, so I'm. I just want to know how long I have. Yeah. Um, Well, it's interesting that you went that way, Dan. I'm. I'm going to throw out a number here. Um, October 31st, um, 2070. Um, now, a, as a physicist, I will give you my error bars. That's plus or minus 70 years. Um, this okay. is not my most precise <laughs> measurement. Um, October 31st, because we know that is when the um, barriers between our world and the supernatural are at their lowest. Um, and so yeah. some sort of supernatural disaster will happen. Do, do I do I get anything for that pun? I love that. Well, I'm surprised okay. you didn't. I'm surprised you didn't tie that into the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which oh, I think no, no. also it's, is going to happen it's on that. Supernatural, meaning it's the natural environment falling apart in a super way. Ah, I got gotcha. you. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Okay, okay. And I love now it. the plus or minus seventy years has to do with the fact that it may have happened already, or it may happen in the six years you're predicting, or we might actually do something to slow it down. Um, big error bar. But you know what? I think you you alluded to something. I think, you know, we are appropriately very worried about climate change. Climate change is real, it's a problem, and it's dramatic. But I think what we don't appreciate is that the thing that's going to wipe us out, the apocalypse, is probably going to be a secondary effect of climate change, right? The, 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 the actual climate itself 
you know, yeah, okay, flooding is going to be a disaster and it's probably going to be really horrible for certain areas more than others. But the general shifts in climate, we're probably fairly prepared to defend against in certain areas, particularly in the first world. It's going to be really horrible for the third world. That's something we absolutely must address. But in terms of wiping out all of society and civilization apocalypse, it's going to be something like we're sort of getting hints of, a pandemic or a disease or some other unforeseen climate disaster that the climate train change trigger. So I think it's a secondary effect, Dan. That's where I'm going. Um, it probably ties into Ben's, um, you know, lack of things running out or no, actual things running out. Sorry, I had too many negatives there. Um, ben, does, does this feed into that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think climate change is obviously a huge problem and, and big chunks of what we, of places we currently live will become uninhabitable um, as sea levels rise or places get too hot or the weather gets too bad or they're always flooded or if you go very far north, you know, permafrost melts and what is now like prairie that you can kind of walk on becomes, you know, un untraversable mud. Uh, that's all huge. That's all a problem. But the bigger problem is by, you know, 2050 or so, we're, we're out of oil and at our current rates. And oil isn't important just for energy and transportation, but it's also important for plastic. And our civilization right now really relies upon the resources that come from oil. It relies on that plastic. It relies on trucks. It relies on diesel locomotives. All of these things all provi provide the logistics that would allow us to even move the people to different places. And if we're, if we're not able to come up with new ways, we're just going to have all these people stranded in places where they can't get enough food and their uh, their toilets stop flushing, and it's just gonna that's gonna be a huge disaster. It's not gonna kill everybody, but it's gonna leave a lot of people in unlivable situations. Well, the good news is that if the sea levels continue to to rise, you won't need to flush your toilet. It'll just be water everywhere, uh, and there's plenty of plastic in our oceans that we should be able to recycle and use for new plastic. So there, problem solved. Uh, but then, and you mentioned something about viruses, and this one's kind of interesting because I've got a couple of situations here. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, we've got virus, you know, you and I are Stephen King lovers. I'm in the middle of The Stand, which is about a virus that kills, you know, 99.9% of the world. Um, you know, I think that there might be a regular virus that kills us, uh, maybe accidental, you know, maybe naturally created. I've got this is coming out in 2030, the 10-year anniversary of COVID. Uh, I think this is going to be a man-made virus that gets out that is incredibly powerful. That's my prediction on this. Um, you know, on top of that, you know, zombies are a part of a virus. Humans compromise with brains uh, with incredible bloodlust. I think this could also be tied to virus. So that's my subset of a viral apocalypse. Uh, Denon, where are you with this? You know, the virus one, I think, is the one that kind of scares me the most. But I have hope. I'm, I'm optimistic about it because as much of a tragedy as, as the COVID virus was, medically, we learned a lot. Um, public health responses improved. I think awareness came up, much like we're now aware of climate change. I think enough people are aware of viruses as a potential way of wiping us out that we're going to be increasing our infrastructure in that space. So, um, you know, the virus thing, I, I think we're, we're a little safer there, Dan. 
Um, so that's why I didn't put a specific date on the viruses. But, you know, if I was to put a date, it's clear that they like to come every 100 years, 1918, 2020. Um, so we're, we're probably good for 100 years with the viruses. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, now, Ben, where are you with this? I mean, are you as optimistic as Denon that we got 100 years left or uh, are you more like me? You got 10 years. Magnitudes here. I know you're big into magnitudes. What are we? Where, where are we? I honestly think we're we're forever safe from this one. I think. Uh, obviously lots and lots of people can die by viruses, but I don't ever see it as like a civilization, humanity exterminating situation. You know, a virus that is capable of killing that many people is going to kill them before it can spread rapidly. And a virus that, uh, can spread rapidly by necessity can't be very generally is not going to be very deadly. And so I think in general, we can obviously have horrible, huge disruptions and horrible loss of life from things like we saw last year um, and still happening this year, uh, too. But it's not going to be the thing that makes uh, humanity wink off the face of this planet. It's it, it just logistically, I don't see that happening. Now, if you allow me to add in computer virus, Dan then I think we could wipe ourselves out um, because computer viruses can attack us where, uh, you know, Ben has talked about, our, you know, particularly in the first world, our infrastructure is so dependent on that connectivity now that the wrong computer virus could be very problematic um, for everything Ben has talked about, food delivery, you know, distribution networks, um, even just the way our heating and cooling runs. It's, it's all computer controlled now. That's a really interesting connection for sure. I, I didn't think about that. I like that, Denon. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. It's, you know, when we saw with the uh, Texas power outages uh, this winter, uh, you know, they were minutes away from the gr grid in Texas, probably being down for months. And you can imagine what would happen in a state like Texas, where if the power just didn't work for months on end, all of the damage that would would cause. Uh, and you know, our grid is not resilient to being off for very long, and it's not resilient to a total failure like that. And, you know, losing power like that would just be a huge disaster. And that is how a virus could cause an apocalypse, for sure. Well, I, you know, and I also want to point out something else is that their grid is com was completely independent. And again, the, yes. con the connectivity of human beings, we got to look out for each other. We can't have the hubris that they can operate a, a power grid on their own. You need the rest of the country. We need the rest of the world uh, for these types of things. We got to stop just relying on ourselves. We got to look to each other. Uh, all right, I'll step down off my soapbox because, you know, you mentioned a couple of things here that I thought were really interesting uh, with the viruses. You know, you said that it won't wipe us out Ben, I'm going to go back to our Sweet Tooth episode and say if you were able to distribute and create a virus that was maybe genetically linked, uh, I think you could create an asymptomatic virus that you could then turn on later on. Um, now, I, of course, don't think any of this stuff is natural. I think that we are going to create a virus that will end up wiping us out. I think that will happen. As I mentioned, I think it's going to happen in 2030. Uh, but as far as wiping ourselves out, I think we got another problem, and that is bombing ourselves back to the Stone Age. we got a lot of nuclear weapons. You you know, we got a lot of countries wanting to become nuclear that probably shouldn't become nuclear. Uh, we got a lot of this stuff going on here. And, and I think this is more and more likely as countries with nefarious objectives gain these nuclear capabilities. And I also think this is going to be an accident. But, you know, 
And our Flintstones we talked about are the Flintstones is bombing ourselves back to the Stone Age. I have this happening, and without any kind of uh, way to stop it, uh, if we don't if we don't intervene, I think this is going to happen in 2035. We're already seeing a lot of the countries flexing their muscle around the globe. Um, a lot of itchy trigger fingers is what I'm saying here. Uh, Denon, what do you think about this? You know, I, I really think the soonest this is going to be happening is more like 2068, Dan, because when my calming presence leaves for space, um, that's when people will get nervous and right. go to the, the bombing trigger. <laughs> <laughs> Just sort of threw that out there. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, I, you know, again, I'm, I am an optimist in this one because I feel we have control over it. I'm with you. Humans don't have a great track record um, with violence. Um, we've done some pretty horrible things throughout our history, but I have my fingers crossed. I'm knocking on wood, lighting some candles. The fact that, you know, we survived the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s with mutual assured destruction as our major strategy, um, I think you might see some horrible nuclear weapon um, somewhere between accidents and terrorist events that cause great disruption locally. Um, but I don't think you're going to see a total bombing back to the Stone Age event. Um, because I'm putting a little bit of faith in people here. I think it's our, I'm with you, it's our mistreatment of the natural world that's going to lead to our end, not necessarily our mistreatment of each other. Um, just just throwing it out there. Ben, I, I, are you as optimistic as me, or are you with Dan? Well, I, I think Dan made, made the key thing there, which is accident. I think this is, this is an accident waiting to happen. And I don't think anyone would intentionally start the mutually assured destruction because no one wants to assure their own destruction. I don't think that is going to happen. Uh, but, you know, I, I do worry that somehow, some way, you know, a la Doctor Strange, you know, th the wrong order gets sent out. You know, there's no recall capability. A bomb gets dropped. A missile gets launched. And then somehow that, uh, that triggers this you know, mutually assured destruction that started from an accident. I think that's the only way it happens. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen. But if it does happen, I could see that's something I could see happening by the 2050s if, you know, we keep uh, ratcheting up this, this, uh, this saber rattling and stop and don't start trying to work together. On the hundredth, on the hundredth anniversary of the start of the Cold War, uh, that would be pretty scary. You know, I do want to mention, you know, before we before we step away from this, that when it comes to nuclear bombs going off accidentally, uh, one of the scary stories I ever heard during the Cold War, or maybe it was the eighties. We were in the middle of the guys, obviously still the Cold War, but there was a computer glitch in Russia where they saw a bunch of bombs coming at them from the United States. And I believe that that they were they were a button push away from retaliating until one engineer, engineer by the way, Ben. Uh, and keep in mind that Denon, this is we were saved by an engineer. Um, you know, one engineer decided to double check his double check the work and realized it was a computer glitch. Called off, you know, basically called off the apocalypse. Um, these types of things probably happen more frequently than we are made aware of. And at some point, we will not call it off. I'm with you, Ben. This this actually still scares me. Um, but, you know, nothing scares me more than I think our last one, which is machines taking us over. A Skynet version where AI becomes self-aware and takes us out. I'm saying this is going to happen in 2084. I think that this was predicted in the great Atari game, Robotron. 2084. Uh, that's when it's going to happen. Um, ben, as our as our 
imposter human, uh, quasi robot. <laughs> uh, where do you fall when it comes to your kind taking over our kind? Yeah, I, I think this is this is a big one. Uh, you know, I, I hope we never engineer robots that are so uh, independently smart that they could uh, decide to you know to revenge against their cap- captors and do that. But if if they did, I think they would do. I think we would have AIs that advanced. Uh, by say 2063, um, I think by then we could make maybe a thinking AI that could really have that consideration of humans are the bad guys and I got to do something about it. Well, you know, Dan, I actually have two answers here. It's an either or. Um, either this happened right around kind of 1988-ish, um, you know, 1990. Um, because I tell you, I am convinced the computers have already taken over and messed up my life. As evidence, one, <laughs> by how long it takes us to prep for every episode, that's clearly the computers messing with you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and two, two, well, look, we're too good. It's clearly not our problem, <laughs> right? right? Um, and, and number two was just the other day, I had to upgrade two of my daughter's phones and start a new laptop. We almost all killed each other in the violence that ensued over the mess that was Verizon's easy upgrade of our iPhones. Um, someone in there was being evil, and I think it was the computers. So either it's already happened, we're there, and we just don't know it, and they're keeping us alive to make more of them, um, or... Um, because of the brilliant movie, uh, The Mitchells versus the Machines, and our excellent analysis of it, humanity has now been prepared and inoculated against this disaster. And we understand that, just like you point out, we have to take care of nature and each other. As long as we take care of our AI, don't insult it, don't throw it out the window, um, it will take care of us and we'll be okay. So we're either screwed already, 1989, 1990, or we figured out the solution and we'll be safe. I love it. I think you're exactly right. And and that leads me to my conclusion here. I'm going to come up with a brief conclusion, get your thoughts on it. And I want you guys to maybe come up with a conclusion. But I think, you know, we're talking about technology. This is a technologically based podcast. But I think all of these advancements, especially the energy advancements, you know, that's a technological advancement. But I think humanity needs a major social advancement as a whole, as a group, as humanity to move past local tribalism and even go to macro tribalism, you know, and including animal kind. I think we really have to work together as a species in order to get past some of these things. You know, we still live in countries and some people don't like people from neighboring countries just because they haven't liked them since they were born. You know, I I like the idea of individual cultures. I love that about humanity. We've got some very cool regional cultures, whether it's dining, cuisine, customs that are great and they make humanity unique, but also that tribalism that has allowed us to succeed by forming groups has kept us, uh, is holding us back as far as technology goes. We have to get past this. Major social advancements will allow us to move to that Star Trek utopia that you talk about, Denon. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I'm totally with you, Dan. It really is about building ourselves to the next stage of culture. I think our social media um, and that revolution has made it clearer than ever in the U.S., And, you know, going to a new culture, going to a new phase of humanity has never happened without turmoil um, to get there. I think that's why we're experiencing a lot of turmoil right now. I think the pressures from the environment is Mother's Nature way of telling us to get our act together um, and work together. Um, And so I think the signs are there. 
Um, the voices are there, and we just now need to listen to them and get on the analytical mastermind Dan Glenn bandwagon and work together. Um, you know, it's our new mantra. I, I, I love it. Um, ben, are you on board with the analytical mastermind mantra? Yeah, absolutely. I think social social ills are a far bigger problem for our society than technological ills. And we need to figure out how to have respect and empathy for each other much more than we have right now. And once we get it, once we do that, I think so many of these other problems will uh, will become much more solvable because we'll have we'll have concern and empathy for the people who are actually being harmed by the bad decisions that some are making. I think that that's well put. So I think that's the answer to the technological revolution is a social revolution. Um, but before we end it here, uh, you know, we're at a section. I've got, you know, a question from the audience. I got another one for you guys. And this one, today's question comes from Tinklet, who says that, hey, F Triple G BT, I can't believe you haven't done an episode on the Mission Impossible franchise. Their technology is crazy and awesome, and we, I would love to hear the Brain Trust take on it. Now, I got to agree with Tinklet 100% here because I just recently discovered the Mission Impossible franchise. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say I'm uh, well, the first one came out in 96, so I'm really behind the times here. Uh, but some of those later movies, they're really fun, a lot of cool technologies. So that's a great answer. When are we going to do it? Then in when, you know, give me a year, a date, uh, an episode number where we're going to tackle the Mission Impossible franchise. Well, I think it sounds great for episode number 106. Um, that's a perfect uh, episode number for Mission Impossible. I have no idea why, except there's loosely related to MI6, um, you know, the British intelligence. They do work with them occasionally. Um, and it's also an interesting thing. I mean, there's a reason perhaps we haven't tackled it, Dan. Um, the Mission Impossible series, actually, I feel personally, is one of those ones that gets better later on, which is rare, right, in, in, in an ongoing film series. Um, some of the worst episodes are early on. Um, they're actually, I think of them as episodes now. There's so many movies, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and though we have maintained a high level of excellence throughout our history, we do believe in improving and getting better, and we get better. So just like Mission Impossible, we should meet somewhere around episode 106. That's what I'm thinking. Well, I like what you're thinking there. I will tell you, spoiler alert to everyone listening, 106, we have uh, dedicated to some Doctor Who stuff. There's a little look in the future, but maybe 116? I don't know. Oh, an ooh, I like that. I like an, that, Dan. <laughs> there's an episode. I think there's a new movie coming out in 2022. Uh, what do you think, Ben? What do you think about this franchise? Are we doing it? Yeah, I think uh, I think we could tell them, but we'd probably have to kill them after. So, uh, you know, this message will self-destruct uh, as soon as in five seconds. So uh, stay tuned. And as a mild, mild spoiler, um, in one episode, I do believe Tom Cruise climbs a building much like the one behind Ben um, in the future. Except I don't think it quite has the green side. I think it just has the glass side. Yeah, that is Ghost Protocol. That is the fourth movie, which is the most fun movie of the franchise. I loved it. Uh, so I'm with you on this. And if you want your question featured, you want to ask something of the Brain Trust, we're easy to get a hold of. There's several ways to do it. You can find the show on Twitter at FGGBTPod. You can find us on Facebook at FGGBT. And you can now, we have an email address for questions, comments, general correspondence, or episodes, topics you want us to cover. And that's questions at FGGBT.com. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And they can find me on Facebook. You stick a prof in there, at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, 
Where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, leave a comment down below and let us know what you think. And please like and subscribe. We really appreciate it. And finally, this show, more than any other, this is the hundredth time I've had to say something similar to this, so you probably know what I'm going to say. But this show contains powerful, scientific information that can be used for world domination. There's lots of people out there looking to take over the world. Don't use this information for that. You want to be a superhero. It's what we say after every episode. Be a superhero. Don't be a world-dominating supervillain. So until next time, until episode 101, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.